I'm Sam Jima, host of the Geopolitics of Business, the show where we explore what happens when business and politics collide and how leaders respond. Today, what we have is the geopolitical risk is becoming probably the most important. So before, in banking and in financial institutions, people were discussing market risk, reputational risk, but not so much geopolitical risk. And today, this has, in fact, a very important dimension. That's Jose Manuel Barroso, chair of Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, who has served in top jobs across business and government, Prime Minister of Portugal, President of the European Commission, and chairman of Goldman Sachs International, where we first met. There are few people who've been in the room and across so many of the key decisions globally for the best part of three decades. Jose is one of them. Jose and I have been discussing the trends shaping our world for years. That's why I invited him for a wide-ranging conversation on shifting power blocks for this first episode of the podcast and to set the scene for the series. We covered US-China relations, Russia-Ukraine, fragmentation of the global order, and vaccine nationalism. And we touch on what this means for business. Drawing on his experiences dealing with the individuals shaping our world today, he shares fascinating personal insights into what makes them tick. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jose Manuel, you have a long storied career as a politician, as a diplomat, and having started as a student revolutionary, briefly tell me why you got into this line of work. <laughs> First of all, um, my country, Portugal, was not a democracy until 74 when we had the revolution and afterwards the transition to uh, democracy, a pluralist democracy. And so I was already, before the revolution, I was 16 years old, engaged in some, as you call, revolutionary movement. So they were against the regime at that time. And uh, immediately after the revolution, I became leader of the Students' Union at uh, law school in Lisbon, which was an extremely politicized school. So that's the reason why I started in the far left, let's put it like that, because we had an authoritarian regime from the far right. And afterwards, of course, with age, I became more moderate. I considered myself someone from the center, center-right, if you wish, in, let's say, in the normal European landscape terms. Even I think in, in, in US, probably I will not be considered to the right, but in Europe, I'm a center-right person. And afterwards, of course, um, I have a passion for Europe. So I was, um, after having 12 years in the, my government of my, my country, including as foreign minister and prime minister, my colleagues at the European Council, it's the European Summit, they asked me to become president of the European Commission. I was, I had to go through a vote, a secret vote in the European Parliament, and I was 10 years president of the European Commission, so two mandates. That's two mandates, and I think only two people have had, two presidents have uh, had two mandates. Uh, uh, yes, only Jacques Delors and myself. So it means 10 years leading the European Commission in a very, very challenging period, as you remember. I remember. Financial crisis, sovereign debt crisis, but also, by the way, the invasion of, of, of Crimea by Putin happened at the end of my mandate, and also the launch of the G20 at heads of state and heads of government level. So, yes, I have a very diversified experience. Yeah. Can you take me back to one crisis that you dealt with that was particularly difficult in a deal that you were in the, European Union? in the European Union? I mean, the most important during my period in terms of at least the impact it had, it had in Europe was by far the financial and sovereign debt crisis. So all the speculation that we had about the end of the euro 
Greece leaving the euro, all this, I was at the center of it, negotiating, of course, with uh, the European countries, the euro area countries, but also with the IMF, with the central bank, uh, and, uh, and promoting a response to that. And I remember very well at that time, it's a story I like to share. In 2012, I invited the chief economists of the most important banks operating in Europe, and I've asked them. It was for a brainstorm a dinner, a brainstorm dinner. The Eurozone crisis at this time. And I, I asked them, how many of you believe that Greece will remain in the euro? At that time, the consensus, the so-called market consensus, was that there will be a Grexit. In fact, Grexit is a word that came before Brexit. It was a possible uh, Greece leaving the euro or even the European Union. And all of those chief economists, except one, all of them said, Mr. President, by the end of the year, it's impossible that Greece will be in the euro. It's impossible in terms of depth, stability, analysis, and so on. And now Greece is still in the euro. And in fact, the euro is now bigger than before. We had other countries joining. So it shows the resilience of the European Union and the euro that was, I think, very much underestimated by many analysts uh, in Europe and outside Europe. So this was a crisis that took many, many hours. I mean, it was, uh, you remember those summits, European Union summits until 2, 3, 4 a.m. <laughs> with Nicolas Sarkozy pushing for something because the journalists were outside. So Sarkozy, president of France, Angela Merkel, always much more, let's say, measured. Uh, but negotiations between the so-called frugal countries, the more austere that, and the more the countries of the so-called periphery that wanted to have some support. It was extremely challenging as a negotiation. But at the end of the day, we've got it. We we, we could avoid the default of all our countries. And so and today, I think the euro is in a much better footing than it was before, even if I believe some reforms are still needed. So fast forward, it's now nearly a decade since you were president of the EU. And we are clearly moving from globalization to regionalization. And you, in our various conversations over the years, have talked about a number of different factors, like the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. Can you characterize how the world has changed since your time in office? Some of the trends were already there. The most important issue is the competition between the United States and China. This uh, was already present, uh, but now it's much more clear. And all the other developments have accelerated this trend. Namely, the Ukraine invasion by Russia, of course, has polarized the world. And now we are, we are seeing politically, increasingly, we are seeing in Europe and the United States on one side, and some allies in, from Japan to Australia and others, and China and Russia on the other side. And the global south that is being, in a way, there's some competition to win the hearts of minds of global south that, uh, that, and some of those countries, some including some medium powers that before were much more aligned, let, let's say the case of, of Saudi Arabia, for instance, now are looking for several ways. So, What do you call those, the swing states? The swing states. Swing states, people, countries that feel empowered to play both sides exactly. of the power divide. That's a very important and interesting uh, debate. It's not only the uh, development, it's not only the, the BRIC countries, it's also Saudi Arabia, even a country like Turkey, who is a member of NATO. <laughs> but uh, also tries to play some role in the region beyond beyond NATO and sometimes apparently in contradiction with, with our NATO goals. So it's a very, very complex system. And I believe probably the most important part 
has to do with the competition between the United States and China. So the so-called decoupling, or at least de-risking that now we are speaking, and that, that we saw coming, in fact. And that explains, uh, the, the, during the pandemic, and the, as you mentioned, Sam, I'm, I'm chairman of Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines. So I, I follow this directly, and I have a direct experience of seeing vaccine nationalism and how the supply chains were put in, in stress. And so what's happening? In the beginning of the pandemic, one commissioner, the French commissioner Breton, said there is not a single paracetamol made in Europe. So what is happening in Europe is Europe is bringing closer its supply chain. By the way, now Europe, European Union, is the number one producer and exporter of vaccines. It was not before this crisis, precisely because many of the capacities that were put outside, namely in Asia, now are coming back to Europe. So, yes, I think regionalization is the new name of globalization. But then the question is, amidst all this regionalization, I mean, you are a believer in big institutions and that you achieve meaningful change through big institutions and you can solve complex problems that way, as you said earlier on, when you were leading the EU, you championed the G20 mm-hmm. as a global forum. You've mentioned in the past this uh, meeting you had with George W. Bush mm-hmm. um, in 2008 about elevating uh, the G20. So can you just take us back to that discussion with Bush along with uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, mm-hmm. the president of France, and tell us how you would have seen the G20 actually dealing with some of these big challenges. Yes, that's very interesting. In, f- in fact, at the time, as you remember, Sam, it was we had the G8, including Russia. It was before the annexation of Crimea by Russia. But when we had the financial and sovereign debt crisis, starting, by the way, the Lehman Brothers episode and others, but also contaminate, I mean, that we had in Europe and all over, our decision was to organize a strong response globally, to avoid also return to full-scale protectionism, as we had in the 30s of the 20th century. And so, together with uh, Sarkozy, was then the president of France. And we went to see George W. Bush, that I knew already before, when I was prime minister. And what was your pitch? Um, uh, We asked him, it was at Camp David, we asked him to organize a meeting beyond the G8. We said, G8 is not sufficient. We need China, we need India, we need Brazil, we need Saudi Arabia. I mean, we need to send a message. And in fact, the G20 already existed more or less at the level of finance ministers. But central had, bankers. Had yeah. never met at the level of heads of state and government. And so it was the first. It was organized uh, still with George W. Bush in Washington. The second was in London, uh, with Gordon Brown. The third was already with Obama in Pittsburgh. And afterwards it became now, I think you can say it's the most important global political forum today for decision. At that time, it was very useful. Today, I'm afraid there is not the same kind of... Can you just tell me how your pitch was received by George W. Bush? Bush, in a very, very nice way, because I remember well that he was very proud because he was giving us uh, chicken wings prepared by... uh, his wife, Laura, by the way, was so kind, but in fact, if there is something I don't like, it's chicken wings. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, 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 he was extremely kind, but he was a little bit skeptic because at that time, the financial crisis was still very much focused on the US and Wall Street and so on. And so he feared, and he was there with Condi Rice, for instance, she was also in that meeting, he feared that organizing a, a G20 on the financial crisis could put some kind of... Uh, put focus on the U.S. and criticism of the U.S. We explained that was not at all our initiative, our idea. Our idea was, in fact, to organize something more structured as a response, and then eventually accepted. And afterwards, by the way, it was 
very important that he launched that process because without the United States, of course, we would not be doing that. And that became uh, um, today a main, I think it's the main feature where people discuss not only uh, economy, but in fact politics. And we had very important G20 summits, like the one in St. Petersburg, for instance, when we discussed Syria, where geopolitical issues come to the first line. And today what we see, in fact, to summarize, and we have discussed this several times, Sam, as you remember, today what we have is the geopolitical risk is becoming probably the most important. So before in banking and in financial institutions, people were discussing market risk, reputational risk, but not so much geopolitical risk. And today this has, in fact, a very important uh, uh, dimension. I mean, as, as we know, it's a boardroom issue now. And many of the people that who are leading businesses, making big decisions around investment, are thinking of new ways to evaluate this geopolitical risk. But in terms of addressing it, if the G20 was what you saw as the forum, a key forum in 2008, and now we have Xi Jinping skipping the G20 in India, but he was at the BRIC summit, how do you look at multilateralism? Yeah. In there the is context a, of fragmentation. There is a real risk of fragmentation of multilateralism. Of course, I have no illusions. Uh, I'm, I lost my naivete. I, I know that the countries are putting always first their own their own national interests, but at the same time, I'm a strong believer in the need for international multilateral cooperation because for by its very nature, some issues require that. So uh, we mentioned vaccines and global public health. Of course, the virus does not need a visa to travel. We need to have a combined approach. Fighting climate change requires, of course, because pollution by definition and the, the threats to the climate, they are by definition transnational. And, and so it's important to have some level of cooperation in the multilateral system in spite of or precisely because of the divergences we have in ideological or political terms. Today, I think the quality is going down and there are real threats. And divided by the fact that Xi Jinping does not come to the G20 in, in India, it's quite interesting because it's the first time that the president of China does not come. He sends there his premier, Li Qiang, that I, by the way, met. And, but it's a signal um, because the Chinese on those matters are always very, very, let's say, they, yeah. intentional. And is it the agenda or is it India? What do you I, think is I, I think maybe it's, maybe it's India, I think. Because and the situation there of uh, India being part of a kind of a coalition uh, to some extent to contain China... Uh, in that region, maybe that's the reason. Because, uh, to be frank, the Chinese, they have been making the case for multilateralism. And it's a very complicated situation because, of course, they are opposing the, the multilateral order that has been created basically by the United States after the Second World War. Uh, and the West. So for some reason, the United Nations uh, headquarters are in New York or the IMF or World Bank are headquarters are, are in Washington. They are not in Beijing or in Moscow or not even in Europe. They are there. And there is a global order that is now being questioned. The BRICS is part of it. At least that's the way some see it, is a way of challenging the so-called Western powers, the G7, but also questioning the world order. But in terms of United Nations, China has been keeping a, let's call it, conservative position of defending multilateralism because they also use this as against the so-called hegemony uh, of the U.S. So for me, the fact that Xi Jinping does not go to India 
it's very, very important. And, and of course, I mean, you have been working with China in an official capacity for decades now. You were the one who helped negotiate the return of Macau back to China from Portugal all the way back in 1999. So are you surprised by how China is playing its hand in these multilateral institutions now? I've been working with China for many, many years, um, uh, since the 80s, in fact. And by the way, Xi Jinping, I met him several times, even before he was president, when he was vice president. And in fact, Xi Jinping was the first ever president of the People's Republic of China to visit officially the European institutions in Brussels. As it turned out to be what you expected then? We immediately understood, myself and my colleagues from the European Commission and the European Union, that he was a different kind of leader, much more assertive than the previous presidents. And for some signals that were quite interesting, for instance, the role played by his wife when he came, also the fact that he was, usually the Chinese in those meetings are very formal, very, everything is very choreographed, very scripted. But Xi Jinping very often, he went out of the papers and he was having, for instance, in the first time I, I, I went to see him in, in Beijing in the summit, it was in 2013, th there was a format that was agreed before, but then he said, no, no, let's have, let's have a lunch only... The three of us, it was himself, myself, and my colleague from the European Council. So that was completely unusual for by Chinese standards, because you keep the protocol. And by the way, that was the first time he spoke to us about what was, was going to become known as the One Belt, One Road initiative. So President Xi, we understood immediately that was a different kind of leader. Uh, but for me, the evolution of China is not a surprise, because um, I, I've been following that country for many years, and so the balance with, between China and the U.S. is going to be one of the defining elements of the future. It's already now. I want to take you back to a comment you made earlier around fragmentation, security of supply chains, nationalist policies. And in the context of business, should businesses be looking at regional rather than global strategies, especially in a context where some sectors have become so politically contentious? I think it depends. I mean, what is happening in practice is that some form of regionalization is already happening and the so-called onshoring or friendly shoring is already happening. And so we should we should understand it. And, uh, and of course, for businesses, they have to navigate that situation that is more complex. By the way, I believe that's part of the inflation we have now. It's not, as some people say, energy. Okay, there is problems with energy. But the inflation, from my point of view, is structural. And I've been saying that, as you know, Sam, well before the latest, latest developments. When some people were saying that oh, inflation is temporary, I said everything in life is temporary. The question is for how long? And the point is that if we have some form of deglobalization, by definition, it increases the costs because it's exactly. le less efficient uh, and so on. So having said that, I think it depends on the, um, on the, also on the sectors. It's more complex. It depends on each business seeing the possibilities of the, its own development. I think there is a big effort now to avoid a full decoupling. Just, just recently, I was now, as I told you, in Beijing, and the same day I was there, Gina Raimondo, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, was there. In fact, we received one after the other in the same room by the Premier. But just recently, besides Gina Raimondo from the U.S., we had Janet Yellen, we had John Kerry, we had Anthony Blinken. 
and also from the business sector, from Elon, Elon Musk, Musk. To, to, to Bill Gates, to Tim Cook, to Jay Diamond. Jamie Diamond. Uh, Jamie Diamond. I mean, and, and many, many others that are less known. So there is an effort on both sides to avoid full, let's say, decoupling, including, by the way, the Europeans. The Europeans are very worried with the perspective of uh, the decoupling because, in fact, Europe depends much more on trade than, than the U.S., I mean, external trade, I mean, international trade. How much decoupling are we going to see? Some decoupling is unavoidable because it's linked to technology. We are in the middle of a scientific and technological revolution, and the problem is that some of these technologies are dual-use technologies. They have an impact from a national security point of view. So it's decoupling already happening. Now, at the same time, both sides, I mean, both. in fact, there are more than two sides, but on the one side, the United States and Europe, on the other side, China, want to avoid a full decoupling. And I believe it will be not good from a global point of view, from the economy. So I'm one of those that, of course, politically, you know where I am. I'm a pro-European, I'm an Atlanticist, so and uh, all my life I've shown that very strongly. But now, so if you have divisions with China, we have to be clear where we are, but at the same time we have to engage, we have to keep some lines open, uh, namely in terms of the flow of trade. It will be uh, not good for us uh, in Europe and in the Western world if uh, uh, we have uh, fragmentation. China is more than 20% of the global economy. It's not the same than <laughs> taking sanctions against Russia, taking against China. It's completely different. It's a completely different championship or league, if you want. I, I just wondered when you mentioned the concerted US effort vis-a-vis -vis China, you know, whether we're going to see something similar to what we saw under Nixon and Kissinger, where diplomatic effort bought, say, 50 years of some kind of economic detente. So there is a difference between what's happening in the foreign policy side of this and what is happening in the US domestic policy argument, which is very much about decoupling and China being on the other side of the spectrum to the US. There is a debate going on. By the way, Kissinger, I met him recently. In fact, he was it's another anniversary. And by the way, he was also recently in China, he was where, in China, where he was received as almost as a hero, huh? um, which is interesting because he's one of those who believes that we should keep the dialogue with China, even if he's, of course, critical, namely because of the position regarding Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, yes, there is a debate. That I would say that in the corporate world, more people are in favor of keeping the doors open than in the political world. I mean, US and China are the two of the world's largest economies and nearly everyone is clambering to do business in both countries. Exactly. So that has very far-reaching consequences if there will be a decoupling. I mean, pharmaceuticals is one sector greatly affected by shifting powers across the world. You are the head of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and the largest purchaser of vaccines in the world. You took the job, I think, at the end of 2020, the year the pandemic began. How did the change in power blocks affect the organization's ability to manage vaccine distribution? We saw firsthand, of course, uh, vaccine nationalism, but it was not necessarily related with blocks, sometimes in the same block. So what's uh, in, in terms of the emergency, uh, all countries uh, started to put their interests first. Uh, one example was India. India is one of the biggest suppliers. And when India was itself affected by the pandemic, 
they put an end to the export of vaccines, which, by the way, it's legal from WTO point of view when there is a, a national emergency, but it was very much affecting us. So, so we saw this kind of vaccine nationalism. By the way, the Europeans, quite interestingly, they decided it is not in the treaties because the European Union has almost no competence in public health matters. But the 27 governments of Europe decided to ask the Commission to buy on their behalf the vaccines, which is very intelligent because can you imagine now the, the richest countries of Europe competing with the poorest countries of Europe or the less rich countries too in the markets? So it was difficult. Um, that's why I believe it is important to have a cooperative approach next time. And now we are trying to to create that, a kind of a pandemic fund, so that next time, because there, it's sure that we are having more pandemics and probably more frequently than before because of many ecological developments, so that we have the sufficient funds to help the most vulnerable countries. Because once again, the poorest countries were much behind in the line. So we saw the richest countries buying four or five times more vaccines that they needed. At the same time, for instance, some countries in Africa, they were asking desperately for vaccines. And uh, afterwards, to be fair, those richest countries, they were generous in donations. But at the same time, during some time, there was very important trade restrictions and even embargoes, including by the U.S., on uh, export of vaccines or materials. And, and was there a clash between, say, science versus politics? I mean, I will say, simplifying probably a little bit, science was great, politics not. <laughs> That's, let's be honest, we were not ready. All governments of the world, namely those who are more sophisticated, they have in their list the risks. They have terrorist risks, nuclear risks, catastrophe risks. And pandemic is one of the most important risks. But when it came... Even the richer countries in the world, they had not sufficient, for instance, protective material. They, are not, they had not masks. There was a, a lack of preparation. So it was very bad prepared from a political point of view. Let's be honest about this and let's learn the lessons of it. So to avoid this happening again. Afterwards, of course, things, um, there was an effort. And I believe at the end of the day, compared with previous pandemics, the level of cooperation was higher. So we could distribute all those vaccines, but with great costs and, of course, with a lot of human suffering that could have been avoided. But again, it's one of those moments that revealed the politics and the new world order that we're seeing today yes. Yes, for instance, that has been accelerated. give you an example. Uh, while the preference of Gavi and COVAX was to buy some of the more established vaccines, at some point we had no vaccines. We had the money. We had the money. We were able to raise 20 billion US dollars. The problem was that we had money but no vaccines because of the embargoes. So we bought vaccines from China, Sinovac and Sinopharm, that according to our, our information was not probably so efficient as the other ones, but they were enough to avoid death and to avoid severe hospitalization. Better a vaccine than no vaccine exactly. at all. And the countries were asking us, and namely the developing countries. And so, so about, but I had some backlash coming from some sectors, uh, for instance, more conservative sectors in the US. Um, and of course, as a humanitarian organization, we are not going to take decisions on a geopolitical or ideological basis. But at the end of the day, people understood and okay, it was 
I think, well handled. We made it clear that it was not with American taxpayers' money that we were buying those vaccines. And by the way, China, that before was giving no money to this kind of organization, now China is becoming a donor, uh, not at the level of, of the traditional donors, but it's becoming also a donor which is important because the, because China, there is a problem there. Is China continues to say it's a developing country. Which is, I mean, okay, in terms of GDP per capita, it's lower than most European countries or even all European countries. But in terms of its economic and financial might and force, it's much stronger than most countries in the world. So we are also demanding from China a more proactive position in terms of supporting the efforts to development. As a former president of the European Commission, I know that you've been keeping a very close eye on the war in Ukraine. You've met Vladimir Putin. You've talked to him face to face. What was that like? Oh, my God. I met him many, many times because at that time we had meetings at least twice a year, the summits with Russia. Now, how is it like? For me, Putin is a product of resentment. For me, Putin is someone who wants to keep power. So, first of all, he's an autocrat. But he has a resentment, a deep resentment, and I think it is sincere, about the power of Russia. I remember in the G20, for instance, just to give it that example, I once I said this to Angela Merkel, when everybody was in the G20, all leaders wanted to have selfies with Obama, almost all, because Obama comes, Obama is a star power, okay? And most countries were coming to say hello to him. Putin, nobody cares about him. One day I remember, I noticed, I said to Angela Merkel, look, Putin remembers me those boys or girls in discotheque that nobody wants to dance with. <laughs> so he felt this um, lack of status. So he felt that himself and Russia have been somehow humiliated. So I think that explains to a large extent this reaction. I'm not, that does not justify, certainly. But I'm trying to explain the, the, what is behind. But then when you look at his moves, are they rational? Are they irrational? I, I think he's, uh, he's someone who makes cost-benefit analysis, so from that point of view, is a rational person, but I believe he has become increasingly emotional and resentful. Uh, he's not a crazy person. He's not, a, <laughs> no, he's not crazy. So it's a, because we could have sometimes, we have some crazy people in politics in very important positions. But he's someone who makes the cal- that calculation, but he makes mistakes. I think, by the way, it was a huge mistake, also from his point of view. In the history of of politics, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is going to become one of the greatest, uh, besides its moral points, that of course it's not acceptable, from a, a pure, let's say, point of view of power. It's a mistake for him. It's a mistake for Russia. Russia is now weaker than it was before, with the very heavy consequences. But at the start of the interview, you mentioned that the annexation of Crimea happened right at the end of your term as... Yeah president of the European Commission, and that was Putin. So what's the difference between the Putin then and the Putin Very good now? question, Sam. In fact, I spoke at that time with him, uh, asking what's happening. And then he said, it shows how cynic and how, uh, how, how many lies he can be, uh, can make and say. He said, no, this is not an invasion of the Crimea by the armed forces of Russia. I can tell you, he said, if it was, we would be able to take Kiev in less than two weeks. In fact, afterwards, I, I informed my colleagues of the European Council about it, and it was published at that time, and the, the Kremlin made a, pro- a protest saying that the, the statements of Putin were taken out of context, but he said it. So the question is, why? For me, three main reasons. One, after Afghanistan, he believes the United States is weaker, and after Syria, he believes Russia is stronger. 
That is a very important development. Secondly, also, he has much more control of the situation internally. In terms of, for instance, now, now Russia is almost a totalitarian state. It was authoritarian, but with some space for freedom. Now it's no longer. I mean, the main opposition leader is in the prison, and so there is no freedom of press. So it's really a very negative evolution. And thirdly, meanwhile, they have invested a lot in terms of nuclear capabilities. Of course, nuclear, hopefully, is not going to be part of the, of the equation. But in fact, they are now more prepared from a nuclear point of view than they were so, and also probably his own evolution. So, but the fact that he said it, if it was us, we could take a Kiev in less than two weeks. According to Freud, for those who like psychoanalysis, sometimes when a, uh, this is a Freudian slip, it's a case of when you, unintentionally you show a hidden desire. <laughs> the desire was to have Ukraine. He, he revealed his, his real intentions exactly. in that Freudian Because, uh, look, and that I know from my context with Putin, he emotionally, psychologically, and I even would say probably intellectually, he does not accept the idea of a sovereign Ukraine, independent Ukraine. For him, that is part of the great Russia. Probably it could be formal independent, like Belarusia, by the way. Belarusia is formally a state, a member, but is in fact part of a, a complement of Russia today. So this is the reality, and, and he does not accept it. And there is a big discussion, another debate to be had about Ukraine and its future in the EU. But I want to wrap up. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic and major blocks of power coming to sharper focus, are investors and businesses following suit from your discussions? Are they becoming more regionally focused? Should they be more regionally focused? I think, it, as I said before, it depends. I think, of course, uh, they should be very attentive to these geopolitical risks. I mean, that's what you say. I mean, what you have to I know. Uh, in any responsible financial or economic institution, there is an issue of risk management. So at least from a risk management point of view, people have to be prepared for some form of further decoupling. So, of course, we have to be more original on that side. At the same time, there will be great opportunities globally. And at the same time, there are efforts to keep things still open. So it's a matter of evaluation. If I'm the leader of a pension fund, I will not, I will not recommend not to invest massively in China, certainly not. By the way, have you seen what now they are going out? Most of the endowment and funds, American, Canadian, they are going out of China. But in terms of some opportunities in business, if there are still opportunities for the short, medium term, if with sufficient guarantees, why not to keep? So, uh, because are there any areas where you see opportunity? Oh yeah, of course there are. There are. I mean, all, everything that is happening now in the in the in science and technology is huge. By the way, in health is huge. There are many also because of the of the aging of our populations in in, in the West and in Europe in particular. So I believe there are opportunities, but sometimes it's not just about the sector. It's about a small cluster. So it's niche uh, opportunities. Uh, we have, but that's the, the, it's not for us. I mean, it's certainly not for the governments, and I'm no longer in the government capacity, but to decide. But it is for the business um, themselves to see and for the entrepreneurs to create opportunities for the future because there will be certainly great opportunities and we see some very successful companies every day. We see them uh, also here in Europe and uh, in, in the world in general. So from your decades and breadth of experience, is it better or worse 
to be in business right now than it was, say, when you started out? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an optimistic usually. I believe it's always better now than before because, I mean, now are, there are great things happening. We are in the middle of a technological and scientific revolution. Not only artificial intelligence, machine learning, super intelligence, but what's going on in biotechnology, what's going on in gene editing, what's going on in quantum computing. I mean, we are entering a complete different world. So many opportunities are there. The question is, who is going to take advantage of those opportunities those who are going, and those who are going to miss them? Jose Manuel Barroso, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure, Sam. My thanks to former EU Commission President and current Gavi Chairman, Jose Manuel Barroso. Next time on The Geopolitics of Business, our theme is Repowering the Global Economy. We'll be speaking to Lord John Brown, former CEO of energy giant BP, and an investor in the energy transition. We'll ask, can a former oil man really go beyond net zero? I'm very confident that solutions are possible, probable, and can be delivered. They need to be delivered commercially, and they are not already commercially. Government has to help make that possible. Thanks for listening to The Geopolitics of Business. I'm Sam Jima, and I'm the show's host and executive producer. Our show is produced by FP Studios, whose team includes Ashley Westman, Claudia Tatey, and Rob Sachs, with additional production support from Nikki Black of SGA Media. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe and share with your friends. Views and opinions on the show do not necessarily represent those of foreign policy, its affiliates, or any institution the host is associated with. And as a reminder, while our program does contain broad advice that can be useful for investors, we highly recommend that individual investors consult with an independent financial advisor before making any investment decisions.